So hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the 13th chapter, verses 10 through 17. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight. She glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. May the Lord add his blessing to this reading of his word this morning. Let's ask him to bring it alive. Our dear Lord, as we look at this story recognizing the historicity of it, may we find um, a beautiful illustration of what we have called the cosmic initiative, the advent of Jesus Christ, your redemptive plan, what he came to do. I, I mean, this is such a beautiful picture of that. I pray that you will give me the words to bring that out, to not read anything into the text, to not deal with it in a way that it shouldn't be dealt with, but at the same time to to make an amplification, if that's the right words, of what you teach us in 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 the scriptures about the work of Jesus Christ. We'll give you the glory. In his name we pray. Amen. Over the last couple of months, and if you haven't been here during those times, we've been going through this this part of Luke, and we have talked quite a bit about his advent, his coming, but in a larger scale, in the cosmic scale, if you will, part of the redemptive plan of God, and we have termed that as the cosmic initiative. And as we've talked about this cosmic initiatives, I have on a regular basis referred um, to some of the writings of C.S. Lewis. They just kind of keep on popping up uh, that have helped to identify part of it. And in particularly, a seemingly unusual set of uh, three novels that he wrote. Uh, They're science fiction novels, and it's it's called the Space Trilogy, and in particular the first one, which was called Out of the Silent Planet. Now this morning, it is not my purpose to go into the book at all. I just want to take one segment of the plot of that book and sort of use it to identify where my mind is in looking at the story that Jesus, or that Luke is telling us, the story that Jesus is in the midst of. Now, basically, the plot was this. A couple of scientists who were evil at heart, these were dark-hearted men, somehow they developed a way to do space travel, and uh, they kidnapped a, a college professor named Ransom, who was the, 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 the sort of the first person in the book, and whisked him off to Mars. Now, the reason that they took him to Mars is they were going to offer him to the creatures there as a sacrifice in exchange for an abundant amount of gold that was existent on that planet. But their plans went awry when they got there because Ransom escaped their grasp and he made friends with the Martians, learned their language, and lived with them in their culture. And what he found out, something that the evil men did not recognize, was that the silent planet, which is Earth, was the only planet of all the occupied planets in the universe that was actually fallen because we are the only ones who had the fall. And so therefore, that's the reason it was called the silent planet. But nonetheless, these creatures on the other planets had no conception of evil. They had no idea. There was no word in their language for evil. There was no word in their language for sin because they had never had the fall that we, of course, suffered in our first parents. And so as Ransom tried to explain to these Martian creatures, they're not humans, 
when he was trying to explain to them what evil was, he used the analogy of saying that their souls were bent. And he used that word to talk about a a horribly crippled body that they might be able to understand. One that was all twisted and turned over. But that was the condition of their souls rather than their body. And that their bentness is what caused them to act and behave in an evil and a wicked way. Well, you can imagine when I was reading this and putting it together and doing the study behind this story, how, boy, that just leapt off the page at me. Here we have this analogy that just almost begs to be uh, applied that way. Because, yes, we have a woman with a terrible um, uh, deformity. Her, her, she's bent over double. Her back is seared together. We'll see that in a moment. But I, I look beyond that, and, and I'm not going to do injustice to the text. I'm not going to tell you that Luke wrote this as an illustration of the gospel. It's just that it beautifully fits. So I want to use it as an illustration of the gospel. I want to look at it figuratively as we look at it first in the way that the text presents it. Now, again, if you've been here, you know that as we make our way through Luke that the themes that Luke presents us with tend to ebb and flow. They come into vogue, uh, into focus, and then they go out of focus. Well, such is the case with the cosmic initiative in this passage. All of a sudden, again, we're talking about the reason that Jesus came. Jesus came to seek and save the lost and to destroy evil, as Brother Freddie read us from 1 John just a few minutes ago. He came to stomp on the head of the serpent. He's not come to make an alliance with evil. He came to destroy evil and sin once forever, once and forever, and to find those he had come to save and to extract them from the bondage of Satan. Well, we have a beautiful picture of that in a physical sense in our passage this morning. Another thing that Luke has been talking about that will come up this morning is division. And this has happened over and over again. He stunned us back in the 12th chapter when he said, I did not come to bring peace to the earth. I came to bring division. We're going to see that division occur. What happens when light enters darkness? What happens when truth is dispels falsehood? There's conflict. There's spiritual warfare. And so there's a division that occurs. And that's going to be right back into the forefront this morning. Also, Jesus has been appealing to the people. He turned to the crowd and he said, would you please think for yourself rather than following these religious leaders who are leading you into a pit. They do not have your best interest at heart. And if you don't look at the signs, then you likewise will perish if you do not repent. Last week, he told a story or a parable of a, of a vineyard where there was a fig tree in the vineyard and the, and the fig tree was not bearing fruit. And we talked about the fact that God was both kindness and severity. There's both grace and judgment in God. And both of those were involved in that particular parable because the landowner came and showed the severity when he says, cut it out. Why should it be wasting space in my vineyard if it's not going to bear fruit? And then the vine dresser was representative of the kindness of God when he said, wait a minute, let's give it a a year, let's nurture it, let's care for it, and if we can get it to bear fruit, fine. If not, then we'll cut it out. Now, what we recognize is that there were basically three principles in that parable. All of them are going to be important this morning. First of all, God wants fruit from his people. That's what he expects. Secondly, God is both kind Loving, compassionate, merciful, but at the same time, he is severe. There's judgment there, and he is wrathful at the sins of humanity. Now, the third thing that we learned last week was that even though he is kind and, and gracious, that kindness and graciousness does not eliminate or cancel out the severity of God. That it is a postponement. And if you don't repent, you likewise will perish, as Jesus has just said. 
So all of these ideas, this idea of division, this idea of the spiritual warfare is going to come back into play as we look at our text this morning. We have quite a bit of it, so let's jump into the 10th verse right away. Now, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Uh, Luke has not changed venues on us in a while. We don't know where this synagogue is. We imagine it's someplace in Judea or Perea because that's the, the, the part of Jesus' ministry. And we also know that a synagogue was the center of Hebrew life. That is where they would teach the language. That is where uh, Shabbat, uh, uh, the, the, the worship service, would be on Saturdays. Uh, it was the center of what it meant to be Hebrew. Now, they came into promise during the Babylonian exile because there was no temple. There was no place to go. At that time, the temple was destroyed. Now, even though the temple has been reestablished, the synagogues are still hugely important. And, and there were many of them. They were everywhere, actually. Uh, you only needed 10 men to start a synagogue. And so every town, every hamlet, every place that there were Jews had a synagogue. I am told that there were something like 480 synagogues in Jerusalem alone. So everywhere you went, you, you, you had a synagogue. And it was Jesus' practice on the Sabbath to go to a synagogue. Wherever he was, there was one nearby. And it was also the practice of the synagogue. If there was a visiting rabbi or a, a visiting preacher... Um, they would be given the opportunity to exposit the word uh, just as soon as they showed up, kind of like Pastor Jeff they does to me every time I go to Haiti. Uh, and I, I, I'm, I'm always tempted to do to him um, um, here. But that's exactly what they did to Jesus. He walked in and says, ah, Jesus is here. You get to exposit the word today. So he's teaching in that synagogue and he's teaching on the Sabbath. Oh, by the way, let me, let me point one other thing out. Um, as you remember, going through the Gospels, there are plenty of places where we see Jesus in synagogues or preaching in synagogues, healing in synagogues, the whole question about what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath. But interestingly, this is the last time we will see Jesus in a synagogue, much less teaching in one in, in the Gospel. And it's almost like there's only a couple of months away from the crucifixion. At this time, he becomes so heated that he wasn't invited anymore or, or else it was a place that he wasn't able to go. But this is the last recorded time that we will see Jesus in a synagogue on the Sabbath. Now, as I said, the Sabbath uh, and what can be done and not done on the Sabbath is really going to kind of be the crux of this. So I'm not going to go into it now other than to say that by this time in Luke... We have already seen it established that Jesus has authority over the Sabbath. You maybe remember back in the sixth chapter when Jesus and his disciples are sort of picking the grain out in a grain field outside Capernaum and the Pharisees come out there and accuse him uh, or them of desecrating the Sabbath by harvesting on the Sabbath day. And that is when Jesus said to them that the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Well, this Sabbath issue was a major issue with the Jews and especially with the Jewish leaders because they had so turned it into a legalistic following of the Sabbath. And it was actually his, his policies, his preaching and teaching about the Sabbath that first turned them so much against him that they wanted to kill him. Also in Luke 6, we, 6 we read, but they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. Matthew says they started plotting to kill him. Well, anyway, this is the scene. Jesus is teaching in a synagogue someplace in Judea, and all of a sudden, a woman comes into the scene. Let's see that in the 11th verse. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. Now, in almost all of the English translations, it, it, it sort of introduces this woman in the same way. It says, behold, there was a woman. But in the Greek, the verb, there was, is not there. And, and all it actually says is, look, a woman. 
and, and, and that's the, the sort, sort of the emphasis. It's another interruption. Jesus is teaching. And it's not like this woman was sitting behind the screen where they made the women sit in synagogue or on their particular side. And he noticed her and, and started to um, heal her. No, I, I, I see her as coming in bent over and in great pain, slowly making her way in. We are not told that she had come there specifically for the reason of being healed. There's not a mention of that in this. She, for all we know, has come to synagogue in order to worship, uh, and, and she's simply walking in. Now, her condition is what sort of takes center stage. And Jesus knows that she is all bent over and she has this disabling spirit that she has been struggling with for some 18 years. Now, we don't know what the situation with the woman was. We don't know what the nature of her physical malady was. And you know that that people, especially doctors and people who are good about this kind of thing, they, they love to, uh, to, to, to have conjecture on this. And so they, they say that more than likely this was an illness known as spondylosis deformans. Um, and what that is, I'm told, of course, I don't know this, but I am told that that is a fusing of the vertebrae of the spine to where the spine becomes one mass all stuck together. And what happens is it bends that spine horribly to where the person is almost bent double. And, and, and rather than having any flexibility in the spine, the spine is absolutely fused in that way to where they can barely walk, they can't barely lift their head, and life for that person is terribly painful. There's no place, there's no way, there's no position they can get in that would relieve the pain. And in a day where there were no pain uh, killers, there, there was no pain management, this woman was such a, 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 a woman that brought out the compassion and the empathy in everyone who saw her, apparently except the leader's of the synagogue. So anyway, she comes in with this terrible uh, 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 physical situation. But her situation was not only physical. And, and, and that's what I want to bring out. There, it goes beyond that. Notice the way that Luke words this. He says that she had a disabling spirit. Now, if that was the only thing the text said, if, if that was the only mention, then you might say that that was just a Hebraism. That's just a figure of speech. That's just another way of saying that the woman had a, a, a severe disability. But when Jesus later on tells us that she has been bound by Satan for 18 years, we recognize that this is not just a physical situation, that there is a spiritual aspect to this, that this woman is being afflicted by the evil power of Satan. And we'll get into later whether she's actually possessed or not. But it's a spiritual malady as well as a physical malady. It's also a social malady. Now, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you know that Jesus was interrupted again at that time. And some people came up to him and said, have you heard about the atrocity that Pilate did killing the Galileans in the temple and mixing their blood with the sacrifice? And, and in basically asking the question, how could God do that? How could such a terrible thing happen in the very temple? And that is when Jesus responded, do you think that those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other? Galileans because they suffered in this way. In other words, what he did was articulate the, the concept of the day. And the concept of the day was if you suffered, it's because you've done something wrong in your life. There must have been an egregious sin somewhere. You remember the ninth chapter of John, his own disciples, when they saw that man born blind, they said, well, who, who sinned here? The men born blind or the parents who, who had him? Uh, somebody had to sin. Obviously, they never really got the meaning of the book of Job because that's exactly what Job's friends did. And God, of course, reprimanded them. So in other words, this woman would suffer a terrible, uh, uh, she was a pariah to everyone. And, and the last kind of a person that they wanted to see come into their pristine, non-defiled synagogue would have been 
a woman like this. So it was also a social malady. But what I'm going to talk about this morning, and I just kind of want you to keep it in the back of your mind that this is where I'm going with this, is that it's a figurative malady. Um, This is what I call a living parable. And and a living parable, we never question the historicity of it. It, It's not like this didn't happen. This is just something that Luke made up. No, No, this actually happened. This woman actually came into that synagogue and she actually had this situation. But yet, what, what, what is being uh, discussed here is in and of itself a principle. And, and therefore, it can be used as an application or an illustration. And that's what I intend to do. Uh, to use this figuratively, not just to talk about Jesus setting a bent spine straight. But Jesus setting the bent soul straight. And that, of course, is what he has done for all of those who are indeed his Well, nonetheless, we see Jesus immediately respond in compassion. Look at the um, 12th verse. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability, and he laid hands on her. Now, let's just take a look at that. I want you to notice, first of all, that according to the text, there is no involvement with this woman whatsoever. As I said earlier, we don't know that she came here to be healed. She's not chasing Jesus down, saying, Jesus, can you heal me? She simply enters that arena, enters that synagogue, and Jesus sees her. Behold, look, a woman. And he sees her, and he has compassion on her. This is a sovereign compassion. This, I mean, anybody should have compassion on a poor woman like that. But Jesus immediately has that exact, uh, that uh, intense uh, compassion. And so he calls her over. Now, that's a word that means that he summoned her to himself. This is going to be important later on when we look at this figuratively because that's exactly what Jesus does when he calls people out of darkness and into his marvelous light. But he calls this woman. The woman didn't do anything. She didn't ask to be called. She didn't ask to be brought up to the front of the, of the synagogue where Jesus was. She simply walks in and Jesus calls her over. Now, that's not like a lot of times that Jesus has, has actually healed people. And I want you to notice the difference. Remember the woman with a, with a flow of blood back in Capernaum who snuck up behind him and touched his, his, um, his coat. R- remember the centurion who sent his servants to fetch Jesus. Remember the four friends who lowered the paraplegic down uh, through the roof to be close to Jesus. People would pursue Jesus all the time with the desire of being healed. This woman did nothing. This woman simply shows up and in his sovereign compassion, his sovereign initiative, Jesus calls her so that he can heal her and set her back straight. And that's exactly what he does. She comes over to him and he says, woman, you are freed from your disability. John MacArthur points out in his commentary that Jesus heals this woman with a word and a touch. And and that's going to become important later on when we see the objection of the ruler of the synagogue with just a word and a touch. And, And the word was simply this, woman, you're freed from your Disability, that what which, which is binding you. Now, disability is a word that means a very severe, debilitating illness, sickness, or disease. In other words, what Jesus is doing by using that word is establishing for us that this woman is not just a woman who needs a chiropractor to be set straight. That this woman has a debilitating disease, a, a, a serious disease that if it's going to get fixed, it is going to be God who does the fixing. That there's no human on earth, even now, who could fix this kind of a situation in, um, in the, the bent back like she has it. And so he, he's, he, he establishes as a, as a very serious condition. And then he says, you're freed from that. That word freed in the Greek dictionary used in this context means to be released from a painful condition. 
And that is exactly what is happening here. But in a little bit of a broader context, the word itself means to be acquitted, to be stated as not guilty, to be a prisoner who has been released or let go. Luke actually uses that of the apostles in Acts to say, and they let him go. They released the prisoner. So you can see that there are overtones even in the language of something more than just a physical healing. And, and, and also the tense of this is important. It's in a perfect tense. And a perfect tense means that the action that is taking place is finished. It is done. It is wrapped up. Elsewhere, Jesus says, when the Son of Man sets you free, you are what? You're free indeed. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. We're seeing a freedom. We're seeing a set, a a relief from her her situation that is not going to go backwards. It is once and for all. It is absolutely done. The third thing I want you to notice by the grammar is the voice is passive. The woman does nothing. She, she doesn't say anything. She has no part of it whatsoever. And Jesus says, and if we were to translate it literally, it would be something along the lines of, you have been freed from your disability. Brothers and sisters, this is Christologically very significant. I mean, we take it for granted because we read the whole Gospels. We go through them over and over again. But no one does this. No one says a word and says you're freed and God makes it happen. That is Christologically huge. (laughs) That is a direct connection. God uh, immediately takes care of what Jesus said. So that is huge in and of itself. Second thing that Jesus does is he lays hands on her. Jesus loved to lay hands on the people that he healed. All throughout the Gospels, over and over again, you will see he laid hands on them and healed them. I don't know if you remember back in the fourth chapter of Luke when Jesus, back when his, uh, Peter's mother-in-law was sick, um, he, he almost heals the entire town that night. And this is what we read. Now, when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them. And heal them. Jesus loved to lay the hands on people. But we also know that that in and of itself was not necessary. It wasn't necessary for Jesus to touch. It wasn't like some power was passing through his fingers into the person. And that's the way that he healed. Because we know on multiple occasions he healed without ever touching the individual. Remember the centurion who sent his servant out to stop Jesus. And he says to You don't need to come and devour yourself by entering my house. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. He did that on multiple occasions. So in other words, Jesus didn't have to be there to actually touch the people when he healed them. But he did it over and over again. Why do you think he did that? Why do you think he actually is touching the people? Because you see, Jesus is not just putting on a circus show here, folks, as so many of the faith healers or so-called faith healers do today. He's not just showing, hey, look at me. Look how powerful I am. I'm going to heal these people and they're going to go home healed. No, it was personal with him. It was intimate with him. He loved the people that he healed and he laid hands on them. It's a sign of of closeness and intimacy and personally. Because Jesus was never just interested in relieving physical suffering. Yes, it was important to him. Yes, he had compassion. But it was the bent soul that he was after. That's what he wanted. He wanted people to believe in him and to know him. And, 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 and that is why I think that he was so personal in the way that he healed people. Well, there are some deeper meanings here that I want to bring out as far as this healing is concerned before we go on to the reaction from this pompous ruler in the synagogue. First of all, I want to remind you something. I'm just making a big deal out of this because it's important that there was no effort at all on the part of the woman. Elsewhere, Jesus sometimes had people do efforts, didn't he? You know, he had some of the blind man put mud and spittle on his face and he said, go wash it off in the pool of Siloam and then, then you'll start to heal. I, I mean, sometimes Jesus would actually require people to do those kinds of things 
And yet here, the woman did absolutely nothing. And that brings out the sovereignty of Christ's compassion in this. I also want you to notice that there is no discussion whatsoever before or after this of any faith whatsoever. Jesus doesn't say, if you believe, I can heal you. He doesn't say, after the fact, woman, your faith has set you free. You know, it was absolutely 100% the sovereign, willful initiative of Christ. And that is how people are saved even now. It is through the power of Christ and not through their own doing. There's no merit. There's nothing at all that she had to do with it. And the third thing I want you to notice about this is the conspicuous absence of a demon. I mean, think about that. We've already learned that she... Was had a spirit of disability, and later Jesus is going to say that she was bound under the bondage of Satan, and yet when Jesus heals her, there's no demon. Now, now elsewhere, there's, all, there's quite often an interaction between Jesus and the demon. Remember the demon he threw out in the synagogue at Capernaum? Well, the demon starts talking to him right there in the middle of, of, of the synagogue before Jesus cast him out. Sometimes when Jesus would cast out a demon, they would come out of the person screaming in a horrible screech that Jesus was the Son of God. Sometimes there was actually he would cast the person down on the ground and they would go into convulsions like that boy at the base of the Mount of Transfiguration. And they thought he was dead. None of that. Not even a mention. No demonic activity whatsoever. Which leads me to believe that the woman was not actually possessed by the demon or by Satan, but rather was afflicted by him. Very similar to the way I see Job. I don't think Job was possessed by, by the devil, but he was certainly afflicted by the devil. The devil was able to bring all kinds of physical suffering on Job. And I think that's here. This woman for 18 years has been bound by Satan and the manifestation of that has been an affliction of everything uh, of this particular illness. So Jesus touches her, he says the word, and as we continue in that um, 13th uh, verse, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. Immediately, that's a word that Luke likes to use, the other gospel writers are very rare there, but it means an immediate visible consequence, I mean, sorry, an immediate visible action to a consequence. No, sorry, I had it right the first time. Immediate visible consequence to an action. Okay, so Jesus, with a touch and a, and, and, a, and a word, he says, be healed. And immediately the re- result of that is that the woman is healed. And then we are told that he made her straight. I just love the words that are used here. Because that which was bent is now straight. That which was crooked is set right. And after all, brothers and sisters, that's exactly what Jesus came to do. John the Baptist, quoting Isaiah from 700 years earlier, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight. And so that's exactly what Jesus came to do, exactly what he's doing here is to find the bent soul and to set it straight. Now, the woman's reaction is the only reaction that anyone could possibly have in my mind. How are you going to see something like this in front of you and not fall on your face and begin to praise God? No one can do this except God, right? No one can accomplish what we just saw or what they just saw except God. And so the woman does exactly what she should have done. What else can you do? Praise God. Unfortunately, not everyone was happy. And that's a very telling thing about them. Let's continue as we see the reaction of the ruler. Verse 14. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath. I try to process that statement and I simply cannot. How can anyone, big word coming, be so pertinaciously blind? 
How can they be so blind as not see right in front of them the power of God? And then to come back, and notice he doesn't even address Jesus. He addresses the people. He stands up and pompously tells the people. Uh, Now, for that, he's been called a coward, and I agree with that. But also, this is one of the reasons Jesus is going to call him a hypocrite. Because everyone knows he's talking to Jesus, but he doesn't do it. He goes and instructs the people. Okay, here's what the law says. You have six days to do all your work. If you want to get healed, do it on one of those days. All right? I, I mean, how could anyone say that? But there, there's something else that I, I think that we want to see here. Um, I, I think that the man was kind of had his feathers ruffled by Jesus, first of all, because he's sort of the big guy in the, in the synagogue. He's supposed to be ruling everything. By the way, a ruler of a synagogue, let me explain who that actually was. Every synagogue had a board of elders, and it was the group of elders. It was their responsibility to oversee the synagogue, to make sure of the fidelity or, or the integrity of the doctrine of the synagogue, to, to make sure that everything was straight. Well, the head of those elders was the ruler of the synagogue. The ruler of the synagogue was the one who made the decisions. He was one of the most respected men in the entire area. He would have had to have been a man who was theologically a, a, a of strong, that understood things, that understood the doctrine, because he was sort of the watchdog to make sure that the doctrine that was taught there remained pure. Uh, I don't know if you remember the story back in Capernaum of Jairus' daughter when she died and Jesus raised her from the dead. Well, he was a ruler of the synagogue there in Capernaum. So this was considered to be one of the most religious, spiritually connected men in, in in, in, in the area. And it was his responsibility to govern over the worship service. It was, he's the one who decided who would say the public prayers, for instance. He's the one that each week picked out the passage that would be exposited. And again, he's the one who chose the expositor. And so he's the one seeing Jesus come into the synagogue, said, sir, we are welcome here. Would you please come and exposit the word for us? So he, he, he's feeling pretty good about himself because he has a celebrity in his synagogue, be it especially if it was a little synagogue. But when Jesus heals this woman on the Sabbath, he feels compelled to get up and make a statement. But brothers and sisters, I want you to see this because this is such a classic example of false teaching and the way false teaching actually works. In fact, if, if, if there are many different ways we could go with this passage, and one of them would be just to show what happens when falsehood is impacted by the truth. Because what he does is he quotes Scripture. He quotes right out of, of Exodus. We, we read them just a few minutes ago. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? Six days shall you labor and do all your work. Well, that's absolutely true. No one disagrees with that. Jesus doesn't disagree with that. Jesus kept the law perfectly his entire life. So everyone is in agreement with that. So he states something that is absolutely true. And then he sneaks in the falsehood. Because everyone is all shaking their heads. Says, yeah, that's really good. Of course, you're not supposed to. But then he puts in his own opinion. And he puts in his own tradition. And he says that because he manipulates the word of God. And says because of that statement, then that means that what Jesus just did is work. And should not be done on the Sabbath. That's what it all boils down to. Did Jesus just perform work on the Sabbath? Okay? And so that's, that's exactly what he is, he is uh, saying. Now, of course, you know that Satan did the same thing. Satan did the same ploy back, back when he's tempting Jesus in the desert. Remember, he quotes scripture to Jesus and then he totally twists it out of its meaning. That is the modus operandi of false teachers. It was back then and it is now. Because you'll see an awful lot of truth surrounding their falsehoods. And you'll listen to their truth and you'll say, boy, this person is right on. And then when you're not looking, they're just going to slip in whatever it is that they want to pull across on you. It's a, it's a devious way to do it, but it is the way that it has always been done. But what it does, brothers and sisters, is it begins to identify this man 
Because this is what Satan does. And it begins to identify this man, as John said earlier, that Brother Freddie read, as a child of the devil, okay? As a black-hearted agent of evil. Otherwise, he would not act like this, and I'll try to make that clear. Well, that's one of the reasons that Jesus responds in the way that he, he does. Um, notice that um, what he says, let me see, where are we? Um, boom, 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 boom. We are in the third, 15th verse. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? Notice that Jesus doesn't say you hypocrite. He says, you hypocrites. All right, so obviously there are more people there in the synagogue that are agreeing with the ruler. Not everyone does, as we will see when we get down to the 17th verse. But at least the other elders, I would imagine, the other leaders of the synagogue are all in agreement. But I think also when Jesus says, you hypocrites, he's talking about anyone who does what this man just did. Anyone who takes the truth of God and tries to manipulate it for their own purposes. Because it's exactly what the man did. And so he calls him a hypocrite. That's one of the reasons I think that Jesus called him a hypocrite or called them a hypocrite. I think another reason that he's calling them hypocrites is because they're acting like they are protecting the integrity of the doctrine of Scripture when they're actually trying to protect the integrity of their own traditions. Jesus said it in Mark, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your traditions. So they're hypocrites because that's, that's one of the things they're doing. A third thing that he would have called them a hypocrite, and that's where he's going to go with his illustration, is that they're doing the same thing. They're doing it even worse, and they're saying that it's okay. All right, the, the question on the table now is what constitutes work? Okay, they have just said that what you just did with a word and a touch constitutes work on the Sabbath, and therefore you have desecrated the Sabbath of God. If you want to do that, do it on another day. Don't do it on God's day. Jesus says, you hypocrites. And he quotes pretty much from the Mishnah when he says this, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? Now, what he's referring to is a a group of writings. That's what the Mishnah is. It's a group of rabbinic writings over literally centuries that have been added to. But one of the writings was a book called the Shabbat. And, and, and it was a book about the Sabbath and what could be done and what couldn't be done on the Sabbath. Um, I, I may have a low level of entertainment, but it's quite entertaining to get on the Internet and read this. I, I mean, I would suggest it for, for everyone someday. There's plenty of Orthodox Jewish sites out there that have it in its entirety. They'll have it in Hebrew as well as in English. And just read through Shabbat 5.1 because that's where this one comes from. It's quite extensive. And you'll just be amazed at how nitpicky these rules are. I mean, you just can't believe the extent that they have gone to to say what can and cannot be done on the Sabbath. So in there, it says that it is okay for you to take your animal, your donkey or your ox, and to lead them out of the manger to the place where the water is, remembering that in that area, water is not a spigot in your house, it's not a spigot in your barn, and it's not a spigot in the middle of town. It's a well. That's where the water would be. And so you could take your animal to the well as long as you're not trying to trick somebody by using the animal to carry a load and just say you're taking him to go water, all right? As long as there's no burden on the animal's back, you can take him to the well. Now, in order to get the water out of the well, sometimes those wells were extremely deep. You have to lower a bucket down into that water and laboriously pull it up. Now, maybe they filled the bucket up the day before and it was sitting by the well, But according to the Mishnah, you couldn't hold the bucket while your animal drinks it. That's breaking the Sabbath. But you could pour it in a trough so that the animal would drink it. Okay? Now, now the point is this. Jesus is, is just saying that you care about these animals enough to want to water them on the Sabbath. 
Have you no compassion for this woman? Have you no care for someone who is suffering? And you wonder, you're not going to let your animals go an extra day without watering them. How can you let this woman go an extra day and, and not be healed on the Sabbath? Well, nonetheless, Jesus goes into that when he says in the 16th verse, And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who's, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from his bond, this bond, on the Sabbath day? Actually, that is, I think, a much more uh, biting statement than it sounds like on the front, front end. Notice what he says about her. He says, ought not this woman a daughter of Abraham? Jesus does not use that phraseology very often. It, 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 when, when he uses, when he talks about a son or a daughter of Abraham, what he is doing is putting that relationship into covenantal terms. Abraham is the one that God made a covenant with, the covenant of the land and the covenant of the people. And the Jews were quick to claim their special place because, by saying we are the sons of of Abraham, John eight thirty three. We are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. Just talking about when Jesus says you're a slave to sin, and so they were very quick to claim their exclusivity, their special place in the eyes of God by saying that they were the sons of Abraham. And now Jesus is making a point by saying this woman is a daughter of Abraham. That maybe you are not as much of a son of Abraham. As you say you are. In other words in John also. They said to Jesus. Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them. If you were Abraham's children. You would be doing the works that Abraham did. If you were Abraham's children. If you were truly. A shepherd of the flock of Abraham. And that's who you're supposed to be. You are the shepherd of this flock. If you were doing the work of Abraham. You would recognize that this woman. Is a daughter of Abraham. And happens to be one of your sheep. And you could care less about her. You wish she wouldn't even come into your, your synagogue. Because it defiles it in your eyes. And so therefore you'll take your sheep to get water on the Sabbath day. But you don't want this woman to be healed. You hypocrites. How can you call yourself sons of Abraham? In fact he didn't. Because he said later in John. You are, the, you are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's will. That's what brother Freddie read us earlier. <laughs> the reason that I have come. The son of man has come to stomp the head of the serpent. And I have appeared to destroy the works of the devil. So if you were treating this woman this way. If this is your reaction. If you see something that is an amazing act of God that is done to a daughter of the covenant, a daughter of Abraham, and you get incensed about it and you get indignant about it, then whose son are you? Who's your father? I came to make a division. I didn't came to bring to, to I did not come to bring peace to the world. I came to make a division right down to the family unit if that is necessary. And it's it's a line that is drawn. The line that you are either of the kingdom or you are not of the kingdom. You are either according to the covenant of Abraham or the new covenant that I am bringing. You are on one side of that line or the other. And you know I like to talk about that line being infinitely thin and theologically defined. So which side of that line are you on? If you're going to become indignant because a daughter of Abraham who is suffering is healed on God's day. What more glorious day to heal her than that? And here's what I want you to see. The whole argument is over what work is. Did Jesus perform work on the Sabbath? Now I want you to look at Jesus from a human term, I realize Jesus is 100% man. He is 100% God. He is the God-man. He is God incarnate in the flesh. But for a moment, I just want you to see him as a human being sitting in that synagogue teaching. What exactly did he do that was work? What did that man do that was work? He spoke a word 
and he touched her. Where in Scripture, anywhere, is that determined as work? Now, I've not read all of the crazy rules and regulations, but I would almost bet you, if I were a betting man, we don't bet, but I would almost bet you that it doesn't exist in their rules either. Just to, with a word and a touch. That's all he did, is say a word and a touch. Where's the work in that? Where's the work in what the woman did? She didn't do anything. (laughs) She wasn't asked to pick up her bed and walk. She wasn't asked to go wash herself in the pool of Siloam. She wasn't asked to accomplish anything. Jesus simply said, with the word and a touch, you're healed, it's done. Where on earth is the work? Who did the work? God did the work on his day. And you're going to sit there and tell me that God can't heal a woman on his day because Jesus didn't heal her in the flesh. Jesus in the divine nature healed her. God is the one that healed her. No one can do this except God. You see why I call him pertinaciously blind. He's blind because he wants to be. He's blind because he desires to be. And I want you to know that he has just identified himself for who he is. He's just identified himself who his father is and which side of the line he is because Sons of Abraham don't act that way. Sons of Abraham don't do that. And so Jesus came to make a division, and that's exactly what we're going to see in the 17th verse. As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. All those rulers, all those hypocrites, all those people that agreed that this was a terrible thing and that the poor woman should be allowed to go ahead and suffer. In fact, let's just get her out of the synagogue so we don't have to look at her and don't have to think about her. We don't have any compassion for her whatsoever. All of those people were put to shame as they should be. Unfortunately, what happens when the light comes into the darkness, it hardens the hearts of those that stay in the darkness. When the truth confronts falsehood. Falsehood just digs in, finds some other reason to not believe what the truth has just accepted. So they were put to shame, but all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were being done by him. So at least to a degree, it seems that the people, the everyday people in the synagogue were listening to Jesus. I don't even know if they were there when he said it. But we were there because we read it. When he says, would you please think for yourself. Don't follow these false teachers. They do not have your best interest at heart. When we study that, we notice that the culture, my dear friend, does not have your best interest at heart. The devil wants you like that woman. That's the way he wants your soul, a bent soul, because then he has control over you. He doesn't want you set free, so he just gets bitter and angry and lashes out. Jesus came to form divisions, divisions between right and wrong, between good and evil, between truth and falsehood. Now, as I said, there's quite a few different ways we could go on this, but I want to stick to What I consider to be a beautiful picture here. God's salvation is just beautiful. His redemption is just beautiful. The gospels are just beautiful. We don't need to tone them down. We don't need to make excuses for the the, the hard parts. Because it is beautiful in its entirety. And when I look at this story and I look at this sort of living parable, go ahead, accuse me of allegorizing this if you want to. I'm not using it in that sense. I'm using it as an illustration. This woman was terribly deformed. She was terribly bound by the power of Satan. Like every single one of us, the children of the fall, her soul was bent. Just like her spine was bent, her soul was bent, and and there's nothing that she can do about it. There is no degree of work, no degree of righteousness or self-righteousness. There's nothing that can be done about that particular situation. That is the situation she is in. She is dead in her trespasses and sins. Her soul is bent. It is crooked. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes into her life. 
All of a sudden, Jesus appears. She didn't ask him. She didn't pursue him. How many of you did Jesus just show up in your life? How many of you, like me, were not looking for him? Weren't pursuing him, weren't going to church, weren't trying to figure out uh, my relationship with the Almighty. How many of you were running from him and all of a sudden one day he just shows up and he's there and he's there in your midst and he's loving you and he's filled with compassion and he sees your bent soul and he knows that you can't fix it. And so he calls you right out of the darkness. Right out of Satan's grasp. That's what he came to do to seek and save the lost. He came to stomp on the head of the servant. He came to destroy the work of the devil. And to save those who were lost in his clutches and remove them. That's what he did with me. And I know that's what he's done with some of you. That's what the theologians like to call an effectual call. That's what he did. He called this woman. There's no merit on her part. She's not even looking for Jesus. She's not trying to be good. She is just lost in the, in, in the, in in the bentness of her condition. And then Jesus gives her the greatest gift that any human being can get. I'm not talking about salvation yet. I'm not even talking about faith yet. He gives her the most extraordinary gift that any child of the fall can ever have. And that is, he set the bent soul straight. He took her soul. That rock, incapable of loving God. And he took it out of her. The Holy Spirit does this and throws it away because it's absolutely useless. And he puts another soul in there. A soul that loves God. A soul that recognizes how lost they are. Recognizes their need for a Savior. And after that soul goes on there, well, that's when faith comes. And faith to understand that you need a Savior. Without that soul, you'll never make a decision for Christ. With that soul, you can't do anything but make a decision for Christ. Then comes faith. Then comes redemption. Then comes salvation. Then comes righteousness. Then comes sanctification. Then comes glorification. The whole process is started when Jesus sets the bent soul straight. But there's a price when that happens. Because a bent soul can't go backwards. You see, it's finished. You are freed from your disability, past tense, done, perfect tense. You're, it, is, it is irrevocable. You cannot go back to that. And actually, the behavior of that bent soul is not the behavior that you're going to have anything to do with now. And all those buddies that you used to have with bent souls that you fit right in with, now all of a sudden you're a pariah. No one wants to hear about Jesus and what he's done in your life. So there's no going back. There, there, there's a new life. There's a, a complete, that, that new life is glorious. The new life is wonderful. It's not just life here. It's life eternal. But it all comes about because the bent soul has been set straight. But oh my goodness, do you make the enemy angry and bitter and hateful. A picture of the book of Revelation, the 12th chapter, where the dragon follows the woman into the desert and tries to destroy her with a flood of lies. That's what he's going to do to you your whole life. He's going to pursue you. And he is maniacally deluded to think that he can have you back. He thinks he can bend you again. He thinks he can take that soul and rip it out of the clutches of God. And turn it into a soul that he controls. And he will fight you. And he will tempt you. And he will persecute you. And he will afflict you until you go home to be with Jesus. But he will fail. Because greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. That's what I see in this picture. So brothers and sisters, we're going to take communion now. And I want to make a completely exclusive statement. This is not a communion for bent souls. Sorry, it's not. Don't eat or drink judgment upon yourself. As Paul says, by taking this communion, this is a communion for those that Christ has set the bent soul straight. And when we take this communion, it's a time of 
of celebration. It's a time of celebration that God's redemptive plan is a celebration of the entire cosmic initiative. It's a celebration of the advent, of the incarnation, of the birth, of the ministry, of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is a celebration of his crucifixion, the body that he sacrificed for us, the blood that he spilled for us, the forgiveness, the atonement, the sacrificial substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross, all wrapped up in what we celebrate here. We celebrate it because of the resurrection when God made it clear that he accepted the sacrifice that these elements represent on our behalf. We celebrate his ascension. We celebrate his coronation. He's the king of kings and lord of lords and he rules this dominion even now. We celebrate the fact that once again he will come to take us home to be with him. But when you take this communion today, I want you to think of another thing. I want you to think about the fact that this represents your own bent soul set straight. That this represents a separation. This isn't just a separation from the world. It's a separation from who you used to be. It's a separation from the behavior of the bent souls. When we celebrate this, remember what Paul said. And in all of this, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor anything else or heaven or earth will ever separate you from the love of Jesus. Amen. Lord, thank you that when you set a bent soul straight, it stays straight. Now, we know that we live in fleshly bodies, and we know that there's still a a, a time of temptation. We know that we have an enemy that wants nothing more than to see us stumble. But we also know that we are yours, that we didn't save ourselves, that you saved us. So as we take this communion, as we take these elements, may... We celebrate. I know it sounds strange for us to celebrate your horrible, miserable death. But you yourself said it was your glory. That it brought glory to you. It brings glory to your Father. So we glorify in that. Because we know that in you we are more than conquerors. And as hard as the devil tries, he will never succeed to bend our souls again. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.